as a hitter, you know, you're just trying to, you're very nervous, number one, going out from the on-deck circle to the batter's box. You're, you're very, very nervous. You know, the, the, uh, the situation is huge. Uh, the fans are going nuts. It gets very loud in there. But um, when I got in the batter's box, I had a, a sense of calm. I didn't think I was going to strike out. That's Gene Larkin. In 1991, he was an ordinary player who found himself in an extraordinary situation. It was a situation that literally no other batter in the history of baseball had ever faced. Game 7 of the World Series. High score. Bases loaded in extra innings, with the season-ending run standing on third base. Moments earlier, Atlanta had intentionally walked Minnesota's two best players, Kirby Puckett and Kent Herbeck, to face the less fearsome Larkin. Back in college, Gene Larkin had been far from ordinary. He was a terror. He batted 429 his senior year at Columbia University. He doubled the school RBI record and almost tripled the home run record. All told, Larkin broke 13 of the 16 hitting records that Columbia officially keeps track of. Most of them had been held by a pitcher-slash-first baseman who played there 60 years earlier, a guy by the name of Lou Gehrig. But when Larkin entered pro ball, he was not viewed as the next Lou Gehrig, or anything close to it. He wasn't athletic, he didn't hit for much power. He spent seven years in the major leagues, and his lifetime batting average was a pedestrian two sixty-six. In his best year, he hit 20 points better than that, his worst year, 20 points worse. If there were a dictionary entry for average baseball player, his picture would be right there. But in 1991, in Game 7 of the World Series, he was thrust into that situation that nobody in history had ever faced. I didn't think I was going to strike out. I thought I was going to be able to put the ball in play. I was a contact hitter. So, you know, Alejandro Pena was the pitcher and he threw a, a pretty good hitter strike, you know, outside and up away. And uh, I put the barrel of the bat on the ball, which would have been a routine fly ball in a normal game with normal outfield depth. But because of the situation, Brian Harner, who was the left fielder at the particular time for the Braves, had to play in. And uh, it dropped over his head for the winning run with Danny Gladden scoring the winning run. You can taste the pressure here in the dome as Alejandro straightens up. And the pitch to Larkin. Swung on, a high fly ball into left center. The run will score, the ball will bounce for a single, and the Minnesota Twins are the champions of the world. As soon as I made contact with the ball, I knew I got the barrel to it, so I knew it was going to go far enough. An exhilarate feeling gets over you, and you take a few steps out of the box. I raised my right hand because I knew it was over, and... Uh, you know, touch first base and Coach Wayne Twilliger and I jumped in each other's arms and then everybody else from the dugout um, kind of gravitated toward me and, and we had a, um, a big celebration on the field right there. Gene Larkin, of course, was not the first role player to play a surprisingly huge role in the World Series. It happens a lot. In 1978, Brian Doyle, a rookie who would end his career with a 161 batting average, hit 438 in the World Series to help the Yankees beat the Dodgers. Sometimes the guy who saves the day isn't even an active player. Take Jimmy Wilson. In 1940, Ernie Lombardi, the star catcher of the Cincinnati Reds, hurt his ankle late in the year. A few weeks earlier, Lombardi's backup, a moody young man named Willard Hirschberger, had slit his own throat and bled out on the floor of a Boston hotel room. 
The tragic suicide, combined with Lombardi's injury, left the Reds with zero available catchers heading into the World Series. The team turned to one of its coaches, Jimmy Wilson, who was 40 years old and hadn't really caught in three years. Pressed into emergency service, Wilson batted 353 in the 1940 World Series and threw out every base runner who tried to steal against him. The Reds won in seven games. Stories like these seem to happen just about every year. Already in this year's World Series, Cleveland won the first game thanks to two homers by Roberto Perez, a young catcher who's been a backup his whole career. There may be many bright things ahead for Perez, but even if he never plays another game, the fans in Cleveland will never forget him, just like the fans in Minnesota have never forgotten Gene Larkin. Larkin is more or less a normal guy these days, 25 years after his big hit. He works as a financial planner. He teaches hitting to kids. But just about every day, someone will remind him of his 1991 heroics. He'll be out playing golf or grocery shopping, and perfect strangers will come up to him. Some of them want to shake hands. Others want his autograph. Some just want to say thanks. But every day, he's reminded of how, in a matter of moments, an ordinary player can transform into an extraordinary one. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, obviously, during that moment, you realize that that split second that the series is over. It was such a phenomenal series that went back and forth, and then when your teammates are jumping on your back, it's a it's an exhilarating feeling. I would say it probably took me a few days after that particular moment where you kind of sit back and you know, and as you get older, you kind of realize uh, how wonderful experience it was, and you might have taken, uh, you might have overlooked what you were doing while you were playing, but when, you're, when your career is over with for a long, long period of time, you realize the relationships and, and that season, how important it is to your life. The unexpected hero of October can be anyone. It can be a tall pinch hitter from the Ivy League. It can be a tobacco-spinning coach who retired three years ago. Or it can be a man who escaped from Hitler as a toddler and went on to author the greatest relief pitching performance ever seen in the Fall Classic. That's coming up on the Fadeaway World Series Special. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. The Yankees take the lead 4-2, a 3-for-3 night by young Brian Doyle to drive in another key run in the sixth World Series ballgame. Yasiel Puig pinch hitting. And he will hit a ground ball towards short. Russell goes to Baez, one. Over to first. The Cubs are going to the World Series. The Cubs win the pennant. In the 1948 World Series is all over. The Cleveland Indians win a 4-3 triumph over the Boston Braves in the final game to take the series four games to two. I might have been given a bad break. But I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Fadeaway, the baseball history podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, The Big Drabowski, How a Prankster Pitcher with a Sore Arm Became October's Unlikeliest Hero. The baseball playoffs have seen some extraordinary relief pitching over the years. 
1926, Pete Alexander, the washed-up legend who'd been dumped by the Cubs mid-season, joined the Cardinals. He was brought into Game 7 of the World Series when the starting pitcher, knuckleball specialist Jesse Haynes, had to leave because his fingers were bleeding all over the place and preventing him from gripping the ball. Alexander had pitched a complete game 24 hours earlier, and entering with the bases loaded, he immediately gave up a long home run ball that barely drifted foul. He then retired seven of the last eight batters to clinch the title for St. Louis. 73 years later, another legend did something similar. Pedro Martinez was scheduled to start the winner-take-all Game 5 of the 1999 Division Series against Cleveland, but he was scratched when his sore back flared up. His replacements, Brett Saberhagen and Derek Lowe, both got torched, and after three innings the game was tied 8-8. At that point, Pedro made a dramatic entrance and proceeded to dominate, sore back or no sore back. Believed to be available for only an inning or two, he ended up pitching the rest of the game, striking out eight batters in six hitless innings. The Red Sox moved on to the next round. For my money, those are two of the three best relief pitching performances in postseason history. But unlike these two guys, the author of the third performance was not an all-time legend. He never received a single vote for the Hall of Fame. But what Mo Drabowski did in Game 1 of the 1966 Fall Classic was every bit as remarkable. It may have been the best relief pitching job in World Series history, Sports Illustrated wrote. Miroslav Drabowski was born in Ozana, a tiny village in Poland, in 1935 a year after the Polish government had signed a non-aggression treaty with Adolf Hitler. Miroslav's mother was a Polish-American, born in the U.S., who had met her husband after moving back to the old country. The Drabowskis were devout Catholics, but because of their name, they were often mistaken for Jewish. They lived on a farm in the Polish countryside, where young Miroslav would remember fishing in a nearby stream and playing with barn animals. But in 1938, when Hitler annexed Austria and the Sudetenland, and began turning his eye toward invading Poland, the family decided they had to escape. On September 15, 1938, Miroslav's mother, eight and a half months pregnant with her second child, packed up her belongings and her three-year-old son and boarded a train to the capital city of Warsaw. From there, they took a train straight into the belly of the beast, Hamburg, Germany, where they boarded an ocean liner bound for the United States. Drabowski's father followed a few months later making it out of Poland just before Hitler invaded. And there was, you know, rumor that, you know, Hitler was going to be invading Poland, and they had already invaded a couple other places, and I guess it was just, you know, it was imminent. This is Beth Drabowski Morris, and I'm Mo Drabowski's daughter. So they had saved enough money for my grandmother and my dad to get, take a train from Ozana, where, which is where he was born, to um Warsaw, and then she was eight months pregnant with my aunt, and she had to get a job and save so much money so she could bring my grandfather over. And that was maybe, you know, a couple months before Hitler invaded. Like, like my grandfather just made it over. His Some of his family, uh, unfortunately, weren't so lucky. They were pretty brutal and murdered his sisters and some other family members. So my grandmother's quite 
devout Catholic, very um, ever, you know, just she prayed all the time. And once my grandfather, Mike is his name, um, came over, I think it was summer of 1939. And I think the invasion was in September. So it was maybe a month or two. And um, she was just always very grateful and thankful that her family, you know, escaped and made it. Silent to their sorrow and woe. See in the fight how our brothers are falling. Up then united and conquer the foe. Off with the crown of the tyrants of fever. Down in the dust with the prince and the peer. Strike off your chains, all you brave sons of Poland. Wake all humanity, for victory is near. Then forward and onward, freedom awaits you. O'er all the world, on the land and the sea. On with the fight for the cause of humanity. March, march together, and the world shall be free. The Drabowskis settled in Connecticut and raised their son and daughter as Americans. Miroslav's name was changed to Myron, but for the rest of his life, everybody would call him Mo. Mo attended the local college, Trinity, where as a pitcher he struck out almost 15 batters per nine innings. During his summer break, he signed on to pitch semi-pro ball in Nova Scotia, where he was discovered by a Chicago Cubs scout who couldn't believe a kid throwing that hard was pitching in a league that obscure. The Cubs gave him $75,000 to sign, which under the rules at the time meant they were not allowed to send him to the minor leagues for at least two years. So in 1956, the wild, hard-throwing Mo Drabowski jumped straight from semi-pro ball to Wrigley Field. His first couple of years were great. He married a flight attendant, served a brief stint in the Army, and posted an earned run average much better than the league average. Cubs fans were salivating at what his future held. In 1958, Sports Illustrated called Drabowski, quote, one of the most prized young pitchers in the majors, and said his considerable skills excite the admiration of baseball men everywhere. But in July of that year, Drabowski felt his elbow snap while throwing a pitch. He tried to pitch through it, but in favoring the elbow, he injured his shoulder. Had he been born two decades later, his career might have been saved by Tommy John surgery or some other modern medical procedure. But instead, he spent the next four years pitching very badly while hoping the arm would heal on its own. In 1963, it did heal, at least enough to allow him to pitch effectively for the Kansas City A's. His fastball was no longer the dazzling heater of his youth, but he learned to locate it, and he got a big boost from his wife Elizabeth, who started taking home movies of his games that he studied to improve his pitching mechanics. By this time, Drabowski had developed a reputation as an affable oddball. He was a little more intellectual and a lot more mischievous than the average ball player. 
He worked as a stockbroker in the off-season. I was strange because I carried the sporting news under one arm and the Wall Street Journal under the other, he said. Moe was also baseball's most notorious prankster. He put sneezing powder in the air-conditioning ducts of the visiting clubhouse. He would slip live goldfish into the opponent's water cooler. He'd put a $5 bill on the end of a fishing line, dangle it in front of fans, then quickly reel it in when someone tried to grab it. He used the bullpen phone to order Chinese takeout. One time, he famously used the phone to gain a competitive advantage. Facing his former team, Kansas City, he called the A's bullpen phone and did a spot-on impersonation of manager Alvin Dark. Get Kraus up right away, he barked, referring to ace reliever Lou Kraus. You should have seen them scramble trying to get Lou Kraus warmed up in a hurry, Trabowski later said. It really was funny. After that incident was reported in the newspapers, Moe got a letter from a small boy in South Dakota that said, quote, Baseball needs more nuts like you. Drabowski was also a master of baseball's signature prank, the hot foot. They aren't done much anymore these days, but from the 1950s through the 1980s, the hot foot was baseball comedy gold. The concept was simple. Attach some flammable material, like a book of matches, to the victim's shoe using some makeshift adhesive, like a wad of gum. Often there's a jerry-rigged fuse attached as well. The fuse is lit, the unsuspecting victim's shoe goes up in flames, and hilarity ensues as he hops around trying to put the fire out. Mo Drabowski's most famous hot foot came during the 1970 World Series, when he pulled an elaborate one on the uptight baseball commissioner, Bowie Kuhn. Drabowski slipped a match into Kuhn's dress shoe, then ran a trail of lighter fluid all the way back to the trainer's room and lit it. You never saw a shoe come off so fast in your life, Mo recalled. And then there were the snakes. Mo Drabowski was obsessed with snakes. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Drabowski would put snakes, both real and fake, in his teammates' lockers, shaving kits, and wherever else he could think of. He'd walk into the clubhouse with a four-foot gopher snake around his neck. Once, he surreptitiously slipped a garter snake into a teammate's pocket. Another time, during a team banquet, Drabowski snuck a live snake into the bread basket on the table. When Brooks Robinson reached for a roll, he practically jumped out of his shoes when a snake came slithering out. Oh my gosh, we would find snakes, and we never knew, we were never sure if they were real or fake. Because he knew people were afraid of them, and um, he would get garter snakes, but he'd also, he would, he became you know, friends or first name basis with owners of pet stores whenever he would travel, wherever the team was, and he'd go and he'd, he'd show up with a six-foot python around his neck at the locker room sometimes. I mean, he went from little garter snakes to literally, you know, the big, thick-looking pythons and, you know. So, yeah, he I think as a little boy, he always loved snakes, turtles, whatever, um, frogs, and... That stayed with him his, his entire life. <laughs> Fadeaway is sponsored today by Audible. For listeners of Fadeaway, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Just visit their website at audibletrial.com fadeaway. I love listening to audiobooks, and Audible is the best place to get them with over 180,000 titles to choose from and an easy-to-use app that makes it simple to listen on your smartphone, tablet, or desktop computer. 
In between World Series games, why not listen to a great baseball book to put you in the mood? One title fadeaway listeners might enjoy is actually the autobiography of one of Mo Drabowski's best friends, Chasing the Dream, My Lifelong Journey to the World Series by Joe Torrey, which is narrated by Torrey himself. You can get this book, or any other book of your choice, for free within seconds by visiting audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. That's audibletrial.com slash fadeaway. In 1966, Kansas City left Mo Drabowski unprotected in the Rule 5 draft, and the Baltimore Orioles picked him and made him a full-time reliever. Drabowski thrived in the bullpen, posting a 2.81 earn run average while striking out more than a batter per inning. Orioles were among baseball's most bedraggled franchises, having won just one pennant and no championships in their 66-year history in three cities. But in 1966, they upgraded their starting rotation by replacing the decrepit Robin Roberts with a talented young blowhard named Jim Palmer. They also improved their starting lineup by acquiring one of the best players in baseball history, Frank Robinson, from Cincinnati. That trade came about when an Orioles scout happened to be seated on a flight next to Cincinnati's assistant general manager. After a few too many drinks, they ended up shaking hands on a deal that would send Robinson to Baltimore in exchange for three players. He not only won the Triple Crown in his first year with the Orioles, but brought the team hard-nosed intensity it had previously lacked. Baltimore romped to the pennant, and in the World Series they faced the decade's biggest juggernaut, the Los Angeles Dodgers who you heard all about in the last episode of Fade Away. Led by Sandy Koufax's 1.73 earn run average and 317 strikeouts, as well as an all-time great season from reliever Phil Regan, the Dodgers won the National League pennant over San Francisco. But it took them until the last game of the season to do it, and they were beyond tired. There was no celebration, one Dodger said. It was more like, God damn, it's finally over. We won the pennant, but it was totally exhausting. The last thing on our mind was playing a World Series. We were out of gas, and we knew it. The young Orioles had no idea, but they were about to face a team that was dead in the water. Before the series, three Orioles scouts spent a month compiling a detailed scouting report that ran 16 single-spaced typed pages listing every conceivable Dodgers weakness. The biggest one was, as a team, LA struggled to hit good fastballs. And if there's one thing Baltimore's young pitchers had, it was good fastballs. In a marathon meeting before game one, the Orioles went over the exhaustive scouting report as Frank Robinson, who had faced the Dodgers 197 times previously, chimed in with frequent tips. The hell with the odds, manager Hank Bauer told his team. The guys that made the odds don't play baseball. Despite all their preparation, the Orioles got off to a rocky start in Game 1. Their young lefty starter, Dave McNally, was all over the place. Every fastball he threw seemed to be either right in the batter's wheelhouse or over his head. The Oreo bullpen suddenly gets busy. 
McNally is having trouble with his control, and Gilliam walks. After a home run, three screaming line drives, and five walks, Bauer walked out to the mound and signaled for the sore-armed retread from Poland. Lefebvre walks in the Dodger third to load the bases. All on passes. McNally just can't get the ball over, and manager Hank Bauer goes to the mound. Bauer decides he can't gamble further with McNally and dismisses the young southpaw for the day. He calls in Mo Drabowski, veteran right-hander who won six games without a loss in relief this year. The bases are loaded with only one out. Entering with the bases loaded, Drabowski allowed one of those runners to score, but got out of the inning without further damage. From that point forward, he became absolutely unhittable. His fastball was exploding high in the strike zone where batters couldn't resist swinging at it. His slider seemed faster than usual, with tighter spin and a dip at the end that caused the Dodgers to wonder aloud whether it was actually a spitball. Mo Drabowski really starts pouring it on in the Dodger 4. In fact, he equals an all-time World Series record. Six strikeouts in a row. Pinch hitter Jim Barbieri strikes out. Next... It's Maury Wills doing it. Willie Davis swings at a third. In the fifth inning, Lou Johnson fans. Tommy Davis misses a crackling curveball. Then it's Jim Lefevre whipping on a fastball for number six in a row. It's an amazing feat. Grabowski pitched the rest of the game, six and two-thirds innings, giving up just one hit. He struck out every batter in the Dodgers lineup at least once, except for Jim Gilliam. Drabowski whiffed 11 batters in all, a World Series record for a reliever in a game. In the half century since then, nobody has come remotely close to matching it. The Orioles won 5-2. Drabowski goes into his windup, fires, and Wills grounds out to Dave Johnson. The game is over. The Baltimore Orioles win 5-2. The players rushed to congratulate Drabowski. It was a dramatic victory for the veteran pitcher who has had more than his share of heartaches in a checkered career. He was salvaged from the minors by the Orioles last winter. It was a big victory for Baltimore. The Dodgers had never lost a World Series game before in Chavez Ravine. Sitting on the bench watching Drabowski blow the Dodgers away with high heat, the Orioles' next two starting pitchers, Jim Palmer and Wally Bunker, adopted Moe's game plan in their own starts. Palmer, then a cocky 20-year-old, declared to the press, you can beat the Dodgers with a fastball. As William Leggett wrote in Sports Illustrated, in effect, Palmer was saying the Dodgers were a fraud, and the next day it would be his turn to put his fastball where his sassy young mouth was. The problem was, in Game 2, the sassy young Palmer would be facing another pitcher with a pretty good fastball, Sandy Koufax. Koufax was already regarded as possibly the finest left-handed pitcher of all time, but the Orioles thought they saw some cracks in his armor. Their scouting report literally called the 30-year-old Koufax a has-been, saying that he has been a great pitcher in the past, but was now merely very good. This was one of the last World Series played entirely in the daytime, and the bright California sun practically jumped up and bit the Dodgers. Center fielder Willie Davis was a superbly gifted athlete, a former long jump champion, 
but he had a reputation as something of a space cadet. In the fifth inning, Davis lost two fly balls in the sun, dropping both of them and making a wild throw into the dugout after the second one. He was charged with an astounding three errors in one inning, and later on, for good measure, he unwisely called teammate Ron Fairley off another pop fly, only to drop that one too. Davis's defensive mistakes led directly to all four runs Baltimore scored off Koufax. In the seventh, when Davis finally caught a fly ball, Dodger Stadium erupted in a sarcastic cheer. Nobody knew it at the time, but this was the last baseball game Sandy Koufax would ever play. He retired after the series due to an arthritic left elbow that left him in constant pain. Koufax was a dignified man with a whiff of royalty about him, but the last image baseball fans would ever have of him was of him repeatedly backing up third base while his outfield dropped fly ball after fly ball. Meanwhile, Jim Palmer stuck it to the Dodgers with a four-hit shutout, but of course, the post-game chatter was all about Willie Davis's embarrassing performance. There had never been a clearer case of one man blowing a World Series game all by himself, Sports Illustrated noted. Later in the series, Davis would make a spectacular catch to rob Boog Powell of a home run, but it would be almost immediately forgotten. The three dropped fly balls would live forever. After Drabowski's domination and the Davis debacle, the Dodgers were done. They barely put up a fight in the last two games, losing both by scores of one to nothing. The Orioles brushed the Dodgers aside with what looked like the back of a hand, William Leggett wrote. It was, and still is, the most lopsided World Series in history. Los Angeles scored only two runs all series, never touching home plate after the third inning of Game 1. Heck, they barely touched third base, getting that far only twice in their final 33 innings. Baltimore didn't hit well in the World Series either, batting 200 as a team. No club had ever won the series with such an inept hitting performance, but thankfully the Dodgers were even more inept. We were tired. We were exhausted. Dodgers outfielder Ron Fairley. We were not playing very well, and we walked right into a bus and saw. Drysdale had two days rest. He starts the, the, the series. Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson both homer the first time up. We only scored, I think, uh, one run the whole the whole World Series. I think we were shut out three times. We had 33 scoreless innings. I've never played on a team that was that inept. And so we stunk up the place in the 66 World Series. Team was tired, and Baltimore had one heck of a good ball club. Those guys were good, and they kicked their butts. The Orioles were champs, and it was Mo Drabowski, the sore-armed retread, who had led the way, wrote William Leggett in Sports Illustrated. The Dodgers were exposed when it almost was like Mo Drabowski exceeded himself, reached back into his past, and showed his teammates which shell the pee was under. After Drabowski, the Orioles weren't afraid anymore. The 1966 World Series was the pinnacle of Mo Drabowski's career, and maybe of his life. He had other great seasons. He pitched in another World Series. But nothing ever came close to matching 1966, when he came out of nowhere to dominate the greatest team in baseball. After he retired, he would occasionally relive his moment in the sun by setting up his home projector and pulling out an old 8mm film of the game. Did you ever talk about that game? And, and oh, so yes, I remember... He would sometimes, on the anniversary, you know, pull out the old 8 millimeter 
Yeah, he had the old projector, the double reel. I remember him putting it on and bringing down like the screen over the the hearth of the or the the mantle of the fireplace. And I probably am exaggerating. It wasn't every year. It was just you know, every once in a while he would bring it out and oh let's let's watch it and we'd kind of all moan you know because we just there's two girls the two daughters and my mom so he didn't have any sons so my sister and I might we'd be like no you know we maybe weren't as excited to watch it but like I said now I can't get enough and I love watching it you know it was the highlight of his career most definitely. episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. Special thanks to our interview guests, Ron Fairley, Jean Larkin, and Beth Drabowski-Morris, who has something she'd like to tell you. Go Cubbies! Thanks also to all the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, especially William Leggett and R.J. Lesh. You can visit our website at fadeawaypodcast.com, where you'll find the episode box score, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show, as well as some vintage photos of Mo Drabowski. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at fadeawaypod. If you like the podcast, please tell someone about it, or you can help people discover us by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. We'll be back next time with the story of another team that won a championship in 1966. Thanks for listening, and remember, a manager uses a relief pitcher like a six-shooter. He fires until it's empty, then takes the gun and throws it at the villain. I'm looking at you, Francona. Sit up front.